You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right. Well, we are excited to bring back Chris Green. We had a great conversation with him, but we that was just part one. This is part two. And so just as a reminder, uh, Chris Green is a professor of public theology at Southeastern University, teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church and director of St. Anthony Institute of Theology and Philosophy. He's the author and editor of a number of books, including most recently Surprised by God, The End is Music, and the second edition of Sanctifying Interpretation. His current research focuses on the doctrine of God, theology and the arts, the problem of evil, and the history of race and racism in the Pentecostal tradition. He and his wife, Julie, live in Tulsa with their three kids, Zoe, Clive, and Emery. So, Chris, welcome back to Inverse Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. I appreciate it. I appreciate the chance to clarify, you know, all, all of the confusion I generated last time. There's a stir all over the internet now. They don't know what to do. People couldn't get any rest, any sleep um, because of the last podcast. We're like, all right, we'll put them, we'll put some resolve um, to that conversation and bring you back one more time. Mate, if people show up for the second night of a revival, something good must have happened on the first. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. Or something (laughs) really bad, right? Either way. Really bad. That's right. And on short notice, too, right? We didn't give people as much heads up this time. So uh, we're really grateful to have you back. Uh, Chris, uh, we would love to maybe just start out with you um, picking a text that you could just read and maybe that can kind of center our conversation together. Is there a text that you'd like to kind of ground our conversation in? Yeah, I think it, it would be good to talk a little bit about the Cain and Abel story in Hebrews and how. I think at least on one reading, the the whole argument of Hebrews is an argument about the different sacrifices that are offered by the brothers at the beginning and the ways in which violence plays into the to that story and the playing out of that story. So Hebrews 11, 4 is a, is a place to start. Of course, Hebrews 11 is the so-called hall of faith, right? In which we, we begin with that description of faith as the assurance of things hoped for. And we get this kind of preface on what is significant about faith and the ways in which we should celebrate it. And then we open with the Cain and Abel story. Of course, we move through Abraham and Noah, Sarah, Abram, uh, Moses. You You get a whole list of people of faith. But it starts this way, Hebrews 11, 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. So, again, what I'd I'd like to just kind of consider is the possibility that this is the concern or a major concern for the writer of Hebrews, this difference between Abel's and Cain's sacrifices and the ways in which Abel continues to speak to us. So that, I think that's where I would start. Yeah, great. And as way of uh, weaving together our last time together, you talked in particular around Pentecostalism that you grew up in and it's drawing on uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, so this is a, a deep dive into 
what it is to engage that tradition in ways that seeks to re redeem it. Chris, I'm aware that um, Rene Girard initially, when it came to the book of Hebrews, kind of went, nah, it missed it. And yeah. there's, there's other scholars that have come back and gone, no, 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 um, Girard didn't understand the Girardian implications in the book of uh, Hebrews. Um, would you just paint for us some of the ways that, I mean, our, our interest here is a, um, a, an understanding of atonement that um, uh, looks like Jesus um, instead of um, doing something awful to Jesus. Um, yep. Would you spell out bad ways to use this book before we get to what you think is going on here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think there, I think Gerard's way of reading it missed the text almost entirely, <laughs> but, but did touch kind of popular misreadings of the text. And mm -hmm. I, I think this is, this is pretty common when, when a scholar like, like Gerard, I think N.T. Wright falls in this category and, and we can name others, but a lot of times when a, when a scholar like that kind of attention explodes around their work it's because they've touched something in kind of popular imagination right and mm -hmm. and other scholars may push back and say oh that's not what paul is doing or that's not what hebrews is doing or that's not what anselm was doing or whatever the case might be but in some ways that's beside the point because it's addressing a a way that that text is read if, mm -hmm. if that makes sense and i i do think there is hebrews in my opinion hebrews is the most conceptually difficult book in scripture yeah and it, so it's easy to misread it also has a lot of memorable lines and so it gets referenced a lot but in kind of proof texty ways right where people are are you know flying in to grab a line here a line there of course the hebrews 11 passage is, is really well known the first part of it anyway i mean once we get to they were sawn asunder and left in caves to starve to death not so much getting those quoted but a lot i don't um, know i just don't understand why there hasn't, hasn't been more popular for the mainstream church i don't understand absolutely it. but yeah so i i think I, I would say two things that i think are just overwhelmingly dangerous about hebrews one is there's a way of reading that that's deeply anti-semitic and you can see that Kind of in the history of interpretation if you look at the way christians have read hebrews and used it it's easy to read it as you know the jews were violent and fleshly and worldly and we need to to get beyond that that kind of crude literal legalistic pharisaical religion and i don't think that's at all what's happening in hebrews but it is possible to misread it that way hmm. right and Another, and closely related to that, is reading Hebrews as if Jesus is the culmination of a sacrificial system God put in place to deal with sin. And that's a very common one, too. And I think both yeah. of those, and, and that's some of what Gerard is I, is challenging. I'm not, I'm not a Gerardian by any means, and I, I'm not an expert on it. But it seems to me from a distance, that's what he's critiquing. And that is a popular misreading that... You know, God wants to deal with sin. There has to be death to deal with sin. And so God institutes a sacrificial system to bring about the death necessary to atone for sin. And then ultimately Jesus brings the ultimate death and atones in some ultimate way. 
And I think that's pretty close to the opposite of what Hebrews is arguing, but not just Hebrews. I think that's pretty close to the opposite of what all of scripture is arguing. And part of what I'll suggest today is that, that Hebrews is not breaking from the, the logic of Hebrew scripture. It's just articulating it. Like it's, it's not altering it into something new. It's simply saying, this is what was always happening. And, and now we're in the fulfillment of it. So we'll get to that in a moment. But that, that, Jerry, that's where I would start with misreadings. Yeah, that's really helpful. Really helpful. And I, I think that question, um, uh, I know one collection of uh, essays on the book of Hebrews put it, um, it uh, I think it's titled A Better Sacrifice or Better Than Sacrifice. And how we answer that question uh, determines a lot of how we see what's going on, right? Absolutely. And, and I'm very much in the, something better than sacrifice is going on mm-hmm. and, and was always meant to be going on. And I think that Hebrews is just, whoever writes it is just such a good reader of scripture and then offers us that reading. And now we're reading his or her reading as scripture. So good. So good. Well, um, uh, with that in mind, let's, let's jump in. Yeah. So I think if you take that eleven four. Right, he starts by telling us what faith is and why we should celebrate it, and then immediately moves to the story of Cain and Abel, which of course is Genesis 4, right after the story, the, the parallel stories of creation and the story of the tree and the estrangement from the garden. And then we open up on these two brothers, and it's a story of sacrifice and violence against animals, of course, but also then against brother against brother. And we won't we don't need to take time to read it. I think everybody's pretty familiar with the story, but it is astounding. If you go back and read it on your own time, like the way the story plays out, right? So Abel is a man of the earth who is not a man of the earth. He's a, he's a man of, of animals and Cain is a man of the earth. And Abel, you know, is caring for flocks and he offers his animals as sacrifices to God which seems to be a way of calling back to the animals that were killed to cover his parents, right? So there's some way in which there are different ways of reading the text and it's, it's kind of designed to invite different readings. But I think one way of reading it is that Abel will never forget where they've come from, right? That the sacrifice is a kind of more a memorial that is telling the story of the family, right? Telling the story of where we've come from. And, and Cain is resentful of the ways in which God is pleased in that. And of course, we know the story, right? He catches Abel in the field and, and kills him. And his, because his sacrifices are not acceptable, and he's offering sacrifices of the land, like grain and non-sacrifice without blood. And of course, there's a way of reading that that would say God is bloodthirsty, right? That God demands death and that God demands a, a, a sacrifice that costs us something, costs us our lives. But I, I don't think that's the logic at all. I think, I think the point of, of it is that Abel's telling the truth about their history and Cain is not. Mm. And that because Cain does not tell the truth about their history, he reenacts it in some way or carries it out. And he does to Abel the same violence that Abel will not forget that their sin has done to the world. So Abel's sacrifice is a way, I think, 
is Abel's sacrifices are not God wants animals or God wants blood, but we've done this to the world. It's because of our sin that animals die. And so remember in, in the ancient world, not that any of you would forget this, but it, it is easy to overlook. I mean, these people are living close to the birth and death of animals every day. That this, this is, you know, animal sacrifice in a culture like ours is such an abstraction. But these are people, right? I mean, who there's not a day of their lives in which they don't see an animal die. You know, it's it's such a prevalent part of their reality, and they're they're watching humans die all the time too, right? So, I think Abel's sacrifice is not God demands blood, but our sin has brought about bloody death. And I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to tell the truth about our story. And Cain will not. And and so Cain then in, enacts that violence on, on his brother. And then the judgment of God comes. And this, this is so important, in my opinion, that there is no call for violence against Cain. In fact, God explicitly forbids it. Yeah. Right? That there must not be blood for blood here. Right? That Cain must not be avenged. And then Cain laments that the ground is going to turn against him too. Hmm. That, that now because of, of what's happened, and it's not so much a repentance as it is a lamentation of consequences, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there's still no truth telling in what Cain is doing. He just doesn't want to face the consequences. And of course, then God sends him out with the mark. Then a little later in Genesis, that story comes up again with the story of Noah. And we, I, I, I like to make this wordplay about how we know Noah's Ark, A-R-K, but we don't know Noah's Ark, A-R-C. We don't pay attention to the way in which Noah's, <laughs> Noah's story actually plays out. And what happens, I'm jumping way ahead, but what happens is Noah begins as a man like Abel. Right? So like Abel, he's described as someone who's pleasing to God, right? that God is pleased in Noah. But after he comes off the ark, after the flood, the very first thing he does is offer an animal sacrifice, which again is what Abel had done. And just like with Abel, God is pleased in it. Right? And that's when God makes the, the covenant promise, you know, I'll, I'll never do this again. And then suddenly we get this line that, it, I mean, it's genius. I, I don't even know how to explain where this kind of insight comes from other than God inspiring it. But right after this, so God, the flood is over. Noah's come off the ark with his family. He's offered the sacrifice. God is pleased. God makes a covenant. And the very next line in the story is, and Noah was a man of the earth, which is the exact same phrase that's used for Cain. So he's been able all the way through this story. And then suddenly after God makes the covenant with him, he becomes Cain. And we could unpack all. And of course, the very next thing that happens is, with his vineyard, he becomes drunk. It opens up on this horrific sexual sin. And then he curses his grandson and the story you know, spins out into chaos from there. But I, I think the point of the story is, a, is about the failure of judgment, that the mm-hmm. flood did not actually deal with the sin and that sacrifice does not either. That the, the telling of the story is to tell us that even when God does the judgment, mm-hmm. even when God wipes all the wicked off the face of the earth and there's no serpent in this new garden, 
right? There's no one wicked left. It's just Noah and his family. And there's no serpent there. And there's still a fall, right? And that even the sacrifice that is, quote unquote, pleasing to God is of no avail against the spirit of Cain. Mm. And that, I think, is the problem that shapes the entire rest of story. Like all of Israel's story is the working out of the ways in which Abel is righteous, but his sacrifice doesn't please. It's pleasing to God in the sense that Abel offers it truthfully, but it doesn't avail anything for himself or his neighbor. It doesn't change anything about the world. And that Cain's response to that is kind of unavoidable. That no matter what Abel does, no matter what the righteous man does, even if he in his heart is turned toward God faithfully, the story ends the same way. The spirit of Cain triumphs. And so those two ways of sacrificing, I think, frame the, the whole of Israel's story. Mm. And Hebrews knows this, right? Whoever wrote Hebrews knows these texts so, so, so well. And so I don't know how deep we'll get into the weeds today, but I mean, almost every line in Hebrews is essentially a commentary on some passage that's been quoted, right? So the writer will yeah. quote a line and then talk about it for a while and then quote another line or sometimes quote a few lines together. And I think, I think you can make a good case that he's working through the story of scripture kind of line by line and working out that this is really a story about sacrifice mm. and the ways in which Jesus does what Abel's sacrifice could never do. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to go on too long there, but just to kind of no, give you a, a sense of the sweep of things. Yeah, no, this was really good. And I think, I mean, I think about um, all, I mean, there's been so many different interpretations, right, of Cain and Abel's story. Um, and it's, it is quite fascinating to think about the different ways that some of the, these interpretations clash with one another and certainly clash with yeah. the text and the ways in which, in some ways, almost like violence can almost gets promoted out of certain readings, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And But for me, I guess it's always fascinating precisely because, and maybe it's just because I've heard in Black readings of the text, both not even just scholarly, but just, cat, just you know, the blood crying out. And I think, yes. you know, Black people have identified with that so deeply. And so it's just fascinating to, to engage when people almost have pro-violent readings of these texts um, in which God is endorsing the violence, right? Um, mm. And so, but it seems to miss what, at least to me, it just seems so inevitable, right? That that's the climax and interpretation that one should at least walk away with, right? Um, that this yeah, I, absolutely. And, I, and I, I want to be abundantly clear. I mean, I, I have the, the gift of lack of clarity. On Sunday, my daughter, who's 16, <laughs> after service, she, she told me, she's like, Dad, you know, about your sermon, she said, I, I, I get it because I don't get it. Like I, I have, I'm not sure what you said, but I, I think I get it at some other level, right? That That's what I have right? <laughs> of making things that actually are obvious seem not obvious. But I, I do think this is obvious in the text, Drew, that God is against violence, that even God's violence, so to speak, does not work. It, it, it doesn't accomplish anything. And it, except perhaps the limiting of our violence, but it doesn't actually transform. Right. And that, so that's the first thing I think is obvious. The second thing is that Israel is the people that knows that. Right. So, so for me, 
an anti-Semitic Christianity is an anti-Christ Christianity. Um, and anti-Semitism can come in a lot of different forms. And I think one of the forms it can come in is the assumption that Israel's faith was immature and mm -hmm. legalistic. I think about the ways we talk about the Pharisees, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's one of the dirtiest words in our language, right? That's yeah. one of the worst things we can that. say about anyone, yep. That, yep. that someone is Pharisaical. But in, in truth, I would contend there is nothing, and I, and I literally mean this, there's nothing in the gospel that's and nothing that Jesus is, says, or does that isn't already in Israel's story. Right. And mm. I, I, and I think Jesus tells us this over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. It's written of me, right? Anything I'm doing or saying, it's written of me, John 5, Luke 24, and that you don't have to colonize Israel's texts to read them that way. You don't have to impose some Christian reading on the text. Just pay attention yeah. to what the text is saying. And you'll see that it is it's insisting that violence is not good, that mm. even God-sanctioned violence is not good, and that there's no way in which Israel's intercession can redeem the world. That, you know, there's a lot of critique of Israel thinking of, you know, one popular reading is that, you know, Israel as the chosen people becomes arrogant and presumptuous proud of their calling as, as the chosen ones. But again, that's just not in the texts. I'm not mm. saying that that didn't happen for some people who knows, but I mean, you cannot read, I mean, there's, there's no way if that's your identity that you tell the kinds of stories that they tell. I mean, it may sound like an exaggeration, but I really don't think it is. There are no characters in Israel's scriptures that are good people like <laughs> Abraham, David. It doesn't matter. They're all like, they don't tell stories that end well. Mm -hmm. And if you have some kind of um, arrogance about your calling, why would you tell stories like that? Why would you, yeah, right. why would you endlessly tell stories about how the father of faith or, Mo, you know, Abraham's life ends in disaster. Moses life ends in disaster. David's life ends in disaster. All the prophets are killed, right? Like it's there. It's relentlessly truthful about, the limits of Israel's vocation. And that's why I think that it goes back to that original awareness that even if Abel's sacrifice is sincere, even if his heart toward God is pleasing, his sacrifice is to no avail. And Israel knows this. I really appreciate uh, just thinking about how you talk about how Israel tells its own story and the different characters within the biblical story. And then you contrast that with certainly American Christian nationalism and the way that, you know, certainly you think about the founding fathers, right? And you can't even name the fact that most of them were slaveholders without people, you know, getting all upset and uncomfortable. Um, and so there's the talk about arrogance, right? Um, that Absolutely. we can't tell the truth in this space. And I think that texts like these invite us um, and certainly the biblical story as a whole invites us to have a more honest reckoning, right? With who we are as a community and our intergenerational witness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this could take us really far afield, but I'm, I'm really interested in the way Americans tell our story. We Americans tell our story. I think there's a kind of a naive, like 4th of July barbecue style truth telling, right. which right. is... <laughs> you know, hagiography about our founding fathers, you know, the myth of America as yep. the city set on the hill and all of that. Mm. And I think there's that level. 
But I also think there is a level of the tragic that if that if if you think about America's best stories, you know, the Moby Dick story or Nathaniel Hawthorne or the the Western genre, John Wayne, they're they're actually all tragic stories and stories about the ways in which violence is necessary, but always ends in alienation. Mm. So at the kind of superficial kind of Fox News level, it is all just you know, propaganda. But if you pay attention to the artful versions of the story, right. it's still very, and it's, it's, it's anything but Christian because it ends mm -hmm. in deep tragedy and alienation. Mm. And all of these heroes are, you know, so I, I don't know if you guys have read uh, Dumez's book on Jesus and John Wayne. It, it's been, no, not you know, yet, but I, I know it, it's been hugely popular. Yeah. And I think that she's describing that kind of what I'm calling, you know, watching Fox News at the July 4th picnic kind of storytelling. Mm. And and I think that's fair, right? Like at that level, that is how people are talking about masculinity and American identity and so on. But at, at, if you pay attention to what our better storytellers say, you you get something, you know, like John Ford, the, the filmmaker, the, the one who makes the Western genre what it is. In, in film, it, it's a deeply tragic story in which and it goes basically like this. There are good people who are at the mercy of bad people and there's nothing they can do about it because their conscience won't allow them to do what needs to be done to defeat the bad. And so they turn to someone who is essentially good but is capable of doing bad things. So a good person who does bad things for good people against bad people. And that person comes and saves the day. But the price of being the savior is alienation. Mm. In, in order for you to do that, you have to be ousted from the community. You can't live. And so virtually every, every Western plays this out. Um, but, but it's also in our superhero movies. That's right. That the superhero right, saves, but then gets right. immediately gets alienated. Right. So, so we need the superhero to save us, to do the things we don't want to do, but the superhero can't live among us. Right. And that's and, as far from scripture as possible, right? Yeah, Chris, I was just thinking that it's um, it's exactly what Walter Wink called the myth of redemptive violence. Like it's that's, that's exactly um, right. it's the Babylonian creation myth told differently. Like the the yep. very pattern, um, we could have just added the names Marduk and Tiamat and, and yep. talked about what was necessary to create order in, in the world. Um, or instead of um, uh, the mythology around floods uh, around the story of Noah to compare that to um, neighboring people and um, flood stories. Um, it's, it's, it's what is present in the text that sensitizes you to the victims. And so the text becomes confession um, rather than propaganda, which is a sign that it's inspired. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Listen, the, the I think that that's exactly you, it. you don't identify with um, Cain, you identify with Abel. Um, it, if that's not the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when it comes to scriptures, I'm, I'm not sure what is. Because yeah. if we're talking about the founding of Rome and um, uh, those two brothers and he'll, who kills who, um, without the Holy Spirit, we identify um, with the murderer as victor um, instead of with the victim. And I, I think that's so key to what's happening um, throughout scripture, but also in the book of Hebrews and why it starts with this talk of angels um, and mm. what it is to go, no, 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 like all these powers are lesser than what we see 
in um, this crucified Messiah um, and the temptation to have powers that actually um, we can promote and um, uh, that, you know, as if, um, as if Abel's blood was the best word that was out there. Because it is a way of managing, right? Like it is a way of people tell stories to manage realities, to create order, um, uh, to, to hold things together, which is part of the problem of seeing the law, quote unquote, or Torah, um, as um, uh, as inherently bad instead of um, an outworking of um, grace and justice and relationship, this relational um, uh, reality of what it is to be called by God, and yet it's not enough. Right. Absolutely. And in some ways, and you'll see, there's so many astonishing arguments in Hebrews, but this is one of them, that not only is it not enough, but it's actually the thing that Jesus has to save us from, right? So that if hmm. if if we're going to be redeemed, we're not redeemed from sin. We're redeemed from the sacrifice that makes us live with our sin in ways that only deepen it, right? So, like, Jesus is not the sacrifice hmm. that deals with sin. Jesus is a gift that deals with sacrifice, which cannot deal with sin. Oh. That's the argument of Hebrews. Say it again for those in the back, Chris, because yeah. that, that is everything. <laughs> yes, that is right. everything. Jesus is not the, the sacrifice that deals with sin. Jesus is the gift that deals with sacrifice that cannot deal with sin. And the writer of Hebrews is not saying this is what Christians believe over against the Jews. He's saying this is what the scriptures God has given us has always have always said. This is what mm -hmm. the scriptures have always said, that sacrifice does not work even if it's a sacrifice that's offered in good faith, like even yeah. if it's the sacrifice of someone like Abel, it doesn't, it doesn't work. We, we can maybe look at a few texts really quickly. Uh, just so. Yeah. That'd be great. The way it's, uh, but it's to, to make it explicit for people um, to, to dive back into those um, early Genesis texts um, th that whether we're in the story of um, Cain killing Abel or whether we're in um, the story of Noah, um, both stories are explicit that sin is violence. So if sin yes. it seems um, too abstracted away and just a matter of guilt and shame for some people, we're, we're talking about the, the realities that um, necessitate um, the blood of others for the world to work out right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the idea that divinely sanctioned bloodshed will somehow right the world. That's specifically mm. what we've got to be saved from. Not just the idea that mm. violence will save us, but that God-sanctioned violence right. will save us. Right? Mm -hmm. that, that's what Jesus has to redeem us from and does. right? And, and again, oh. he doesn't do that as some kind of critique of Israel's faith, but as the revelation of it, right? as the fulfillment of it. So the, like if you look in Hebrews 2, maybe pick it up at verse five and we'll jump from, from two to, to nine, chapter two to, to chapter nine. <clears throat> now God did not subject the coming world. This is two five. God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, which is to your point, Jared, about what, where the power really is. Right. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? 
You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet, which is, of course, Psalm 8. Just a quick aside about the writer of Hebrews knows the Psalms so well. Yeah. And one of the things, if you, if you do a study on your own about sacrifice in Psalms, it's the, the teaching is abundantly clear. It's going to be the same thing that Hebrews says, which is God does mm -hmm. not want sacrifice. God is not yeah. pleased to sacrifice that the one of the major enemies, maybe the primary enemy in the Psalms is the one who's called the bloodthirsty one. The bloodthirsty mm -hmm. one, of course, is not God. Right? Like The bloodthirsty one is the enemy of God and the enemy of the people of God. So God is the one who's against bloodshed in Psalms. And the, this is one of the juxtapositions, right, of David as the psalmist, but mm -hmm. David is a man of blood. Right. Yeah. And so the Psalms, one way of reading that is that the Psalms are David's confession to God about what his bloodshed cannot bring about. Mm. Right. Like that uh, David is the man of violence, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I think Americans steeped in the tragic stories we've told were drawn to David because David is a tragic figure. Yeah, because he's a better messiah than Jesus if what you want is permission to roll tanks in and take over. Absolutely, yeah. I, although, to get that out of the story is to terribly misread the story, right? Um, and I think that's why, the back to your point about the spirit leading us to, to identify with Abel, not with Cain, mm. that what scripture celebrates, celebrates about David are not the victories. It's the songs. Yeah. But that, that what when when scripture actually celebrates David, it celebrates David, the child who sings, not the king who conquers. Now, we might celebrate the king who's conquered, but that's not what the text is doing. Right. Hmm. And and in the Psalms, again and again and again, the, the story is, you know, look at Psalm 50, look at Psalm 40, that Psalm 51, like sacrifice isn't going to help here. That's not what God wants. And so the writer of Hebrews is really working that theology out. So he says, he's quoting Psalm 8, all things are under humanity's feet. And then he says, in subjecting all things to human beings, God left nothing outside their control. But as it is, we do not see everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, Psalm 8 describes a reality that we don't experience. Like Psalm 8 says that human beings are enthroned over creation. But that's not mm -hmm. what we see. What we see is violence. What we see is oppression. What we see is corruption. And the alternative is, what if Psalm 8 is true for Jesus? He's the one in whom God has enthroned, or he's the one enthroned over creation. He's, he's the one who's fulfilling humanity's destiny, humanity's vocation. We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death. He's crowned with glory and honor because he dies so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here's another one of those, you know, so in kind of pop evangelicalism, you can kind of get God the Father as the one who's just and God the Son as the one who's merciful and Jesus is the elder brother who saves us from the alcoholic, abusive father, right? He's inter intervening so that God, the just one, the father, does not lash out and demand blood from us. Jesus lets his own blood stand in place. But 
I mean, scripture contradicts that at every turn. And and this text is saying outright, it's the grace of the father in Jesus that allows Jesus to taste death for everyone. And then the argument spills out from there. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It is fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one father. It's a really astounding claim, right? That we are sons and daughters. We're siblings of Jesus and and heirs of God. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And then another quote from scripture, I will claim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, another passage, I'll put my trust in him. And then yet another, here am I and the children whom God has given me. And then look at the way in which the writer identifies what it means for Jesus to be in flesh and blood. Since Mm -hmm. therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those all their lives, who all of their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So this is, you know, again, as far as you can be removed from God has instituted a system of sacrifice to deal with sin. What's fitting is that God should save us through identification with the sacrifices So notice the language there of of suffering, but it's fitting that God would perfect our Redeemer through suffering. Jesus as victim here, not as conqueror, not as Cain who strikes Abel down, not as David who defeats the enemies of God, but as the enemies of God, right? As Bob Mm -hmm. Eckblad says, Jesus identifies not with Israel going through on dry ground. He identifies with Pharaoh and the armies going down in the flood, right? That, That Jesus endlessly identifies with the victims of violence. Mm. He lets the violence that Israel or that Israel claims God has done to others. Jesus always identifies with those people. And that's what Hebrews is arguing. Jesus is going to be identified with the sacrifices mm-hmm. and in both ways, right? So Abel has caused bloodshed as a way of remembering the truth of our experience. Cain causes bloodshed out of jealousy toward Cain and envy toward his blessings. But in both cases, Jesus identifies with the victim. Yeah, right? He identifies with Abel's victim and he identifies with Cain's victim. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is fitting because the one who has the power of death is the devil. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the, the one who inflicts death is the enemy of God, not God. And we're we're afraid of it because of the ways in which death is wielded by the by the evil one. We're afraid of the ways in which uh, the evil one might use death against us, right? And so Jesus has come to redeem us from that. So does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I number one, I love I always love this passage and I I feel like it's mm. one of those texts that um especially as a black man in the U.S., it, it provides, uh, it anchors me in some hope and faith, right? Because mm-hmm. when I'm frustrated and I've got friends saying like, you know, there is no God, how can God be here? Because look at all that's going on. And I'm, uh, uh, the, but we do see Jesus, right? Um, just reminds me, and I always say that that preaches for me. Um, yeah. 
to, to, to look to Jesus in the midst of all the violence and the ways that we don't see God sometimes present in the way that we would want, right? Um, in the way that we don't see the manifestation of God's reign in the way that we would want in the world, uh, but we do see Jesus. But I do think um, what you're getting to, which is really important is, you know, I mean, again, which I guess you can do when, when you get to preach texts and you decide where you want to stop, right? <laughs> um, if you don't want to finish all the way, yeah. then you can kind of read this as a text that is somehow this kind of penal substitutionary atonement theology yeah. um, and this sadistic God that needs and requires death. Um, yeah. But if you just keep going through, right, then all of a sudden you see, no, it's quite the opposite. It's God is destroying death. Um, that's right. The of Jesus Christ. And it's a very different kind of message, I think, um, in a world that is death dealing um, too often for too many. Yeah. And, and, and I just want to stress the point here. God in Jesus is dealing with death at two levels. He's mm -hmm. dealing with and, and I think everybody can see or at least will concede that he's dealing with the death that Cain brings. Like everybody can agree, mm -hmm. Jesus needs to stop this, you know, the fratricidal instinct to violence. Right. But the writer of Hebrews says, listen, that's not actually what Jesus is concerned with. Jesus has to save us from Abel's sacrifice, not just Cain's. Yeah. 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 And it, it's not just violence, it's divinely sanctioned violence divinely that Jesus right. delivers from. Yep. That's right. Yep. So we can see it clear. And that's why I wanted to just press pause and slow down because, um, I, I mean, this is gold. Like this is yeah. like in this nonviolent atonement series that we've been doing, I, I feel like you've brought so much together in just a, a, a few lines there, Chris, uh, particularly with your talk of um, uh, the anti-Trinitarian or sub-Trinitarian um, kind of teaching, uh, which because of a certain understanding of atonement needs to make the father into someone who doesn't, um, for whom Jesus is not the full um, radiance of. And I mean, maybe it's worth quoting explicitly in terms of Hebrews 1, 3. So people know this is what yeah. Hebrews said. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The son is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Um, so, so what we get in Jesus is what we get in the mystery uh, of God. And yet so many people are like, well, God is just and Jesus is mercy. And so Christian ethics is how do we balance the father and the son? And hopefully the Holy Spirit will teach us how to balance those things, which is that's what I mean by subterranean. Like it's, it's actually anti what we see in Jesus. Um, it demotes an angel <laughs> of your atonement theory above the lordship of Jesus. And so this angel of how I understand atonement has a need for Jesus. So Jesus is still in the pantheon of importance. Um, and uh, But you have to balance Jesus with the Father. And yet what you're making really explicit here and explicit about the suffering as well, and this is probably really important, and I don't want to steal your thunder. Um, so no, uh, let's do it. Are you, are you going to talk about um, Hebrews and Jesus not identified as the lamb but as the priest? Because yes, I am, but I'd love, oh, let's do it right now. I mean, this is a great place to do it. I mean, I, I think you, you're seeing the connection. This is this is exact point, right? Yeah. Yes. Like this, this is the exact point. Um, the book of Hebrews is, is trying to actually um, reveal to us what God is like. While at the same time revealing all that stuff that we claim is God and it's going, mm -mm, keep looking at Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that the, we're, 
we're kept from seeing that by two things. We're either kept from seeing it, be, well, and two sides of the same thing. We don't have faith to see it, but also we, our own sins, and sins specifically committed in the name of holiness are keeping us from seeing the holiness of God, right? The the concern, and this, the, Hebrews, again, doesn't invent this out of, out of nothing. This is all of Israel scripture. The concern is it's precisely those who shed blood in the name of God mm-hmm. who are most violent, right? And whose violence is most obscuring. Yes. And that's the concern of, of the whole sweep of scripture, right? That we don't just need to be delivered from Cain's violence. We have to be delivered from Abel's too. Yeah. And that, I think somehow we've we've missed that, and I think we can say some of the reasons why we've missed it. But um, yeah, and, and Chris, to make it explicit, like um, your current research area around um, uh, racism and injustice in uh, America. I mean, the way that you opened up um, Genesis four in terms of um, a, a sacrifice that remembers um, uh, like mercy versus um, Cain's cover-up and the, the dangerous um, sacrifices that continue to cover up injustice and Absolutely. crying out. I mean, uh, if that is not a word for, like, our current situations um, in these colonial realities that um, we live in, uh, I don't know what is. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there is no way into the future that isn't telling the whole truth about the past. In fact, the future mm. is nothing but the truth we tell or don't tell about the past. I mean, that's all the future is. Ooh. Like the future is nothing but what we say about our past. And it will be as good as our telling of the past is truthful. Hmm. And hmm. If, if we could tell the whole truth about our past, we would move into the kingdom of God. Like that's, the, I, I mean it that directly, right? Like the future, that's all it is, is how truthful can you be about what has happened? And, Right now, Americans are not truthful about our past. That's right. Yeah. At least as a people, we're not truthful about our past. Not saying, of course, there aren't people who are truthful, but... and, and that, there, I'm glad it's just an American problem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Jared, it's a good thing that, you know, all this critical race theory stuff in the church, it's only happening in the U.S., right? <laughs> That's right. right. I'm glad it's not being discussed in Parliament in Australia in the same ridiculous ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, and out of that, I mean, obviously that would take us a field, but I, I do think it is important to remember that there are always kind of at least two narratives in our stories. And I think this is probably true for Australia. I know it's true in America that, you know, there's that kind of superficial, the way that politicians talk. And that's always not only untrue, but kind of defiantly stupid, right? Like there's a there's a kind of stupidity to it. That's yeah. that's purposeful, yeah. right? right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's Kane's cover up, absolutely. Right. But yeah. there's a deeper level of awareness that's deeply tragic. I mean, I think there's a way in mm. which the you can't commit the violence that colonial nations have committed without having a bad conscience. Like you're, you're, no matter who you are, that kind of violence 
stays with you, stays in your body, right? And, yeah. you know, so James Baldwin and others have pointed to is what every violence you do against another human being recoils on you. Right? So yeah. whatever the slaveholder does to the slave, as horrific as that is, the slaveholder suffers more because it's it's more dehumanizing, right? They can treat the slave in a dehumanizing way, but they can't actually take the humanity away from the slave, right? But they can, they can, which is a phenomenal humanity. thing for Baldwin to say. I mean, oh, Baldwin is yeah. in no way ignorant of like this, like, <laughs> like, but the the point that he is making, um, yeah, I, I find it a little difficult, even it being said. Like, uh, I'm like, really? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we should say it if it's not difficult, right? But I, I do think when you grapple with what he means. Because the first time I read it years ago, um, I, I had a very similar response. I mean, it it, it seemed wrong. Like, mm -hmm. wait a minute. Like, because it can seem like a kind of mitigation of the evils, right? Like you're like you're in some way downplaying how bad it really was. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not at all what he's doing. What he's saying is, as horrific as the evil you do to someone else is the consequences of doing that evil are more horrific for you in that it strips you of your basic humanity. Yeah. It doesn't just degradate your body. It doesn't just destroy your family systems. It doesn't just keep you from economic justice. It kills your soul. And I, I think we, if we're going to talk about that again, it should always be difficult, but we need to, to realize that he's in no way downplaying the evils of what we've done to others. He's just saying, we are not even beginning to calculate the evil we've done to ourselves, right? In, in, in the evil that we've done to others. At, at least that's how I'm reading. I mean, I'm open to different readings. That's that, it seems to me, that's the, the point that he's making. And Tony Morrison picks up a very similar theme. Um, although she, she problematizes it in her novels differently, but I mean, I, I think, I think it is, there's something about that that's true, right? That the, the ways you sin against others, there are very real consequences, but they remain at the mercy of God in spite of what you do to them. But what you do to yourself cuts you off from the mercy of God. Like it makes it so that you, you're resisting the very mercy that's offered. And it, it's a, I think it's, it's a terrifying thought to consider, right? That the sins we commit against others recoil on us like that. Mm. And I don't, I think, I don't think Americans or Australians or any colonial power. I mean, I, we're not, we're not reckoning with anything like that. No, because we're, we're caught up in Lamech 70 times seven rather than Jesus's. Well, so come the, on. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Where the, where the story goes and the mark um, of mercy to seek to reduce that violence that Cain then lives with, um, he's marked by that violence um, uh, because it's contagious. Like there is a, what is not confessed cannot be healed. And the, the spiral of um, that injustice continues to, to plague Cain. And that's, that's the sense that I make. And uh, Drew, um, cause I really do want to get back to, um, 
identification not with um, the sacrificed mm-hmm. lamb, but um, with the priest in, in Hebrews. Right. But before right. we do, Drew, um, on Baldwin, on that point, on the um, the, 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 the spiral and um, increasing chaos of violence and Baldwin's point, um, what are your initial... Um, yeah, I'd just be interested to hear Response. your thoughts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, half of me, half of me says yes, and half of me says no. Right? I think the initial mm. half of me, which is probably a very American way of thinking about, it, is primarily just thinking about the physical sufferings that we have endured as people. And so, I, my initial is, is like, no, no way, because you can't equate the lived experience of the those who are oppressed right with yep. those who were oppressed but i think when you go at a deeper level and begin to think about the very like what does it mean to be human and to be fully human and um like i don't there's no part of me that would want to in fact i think about my own children like I, it sounds strange to say, but I would not want my children to be oppressors, to be those kinds of people that are so far from God, so away from our own human vocation. Um, and so there's something, and I don't know if his language is the best or not. I mean, we could get into that. That's a whole nother thing. And maybe yeah. comparing one to the other maybe is unhelpful at that point. Um, but to take seriously the degradation of human of humanity right um i think there's something really powerful there that ought not be lost and maybe the danger is which is why wrestle is is the when we begin to compare right maybe that's yeah. probably probably that's where we it feels getting problematic but i do think there's something very poignant and helpful about what what baldwin uh points out which i think many of us know deep down at the soul level, right? That there's something Mm. there that has deeply, I mean, I look at even my students who many of them are oblivious, right? They talk about the willful um, ignorance that they've been formed into when they come into my classroom. Um, And yet there's something something terribly off that that cuts them off from their full humanity um, at times that is really Mm. quite sad actually it's a pretty um it's i don't know i mean it's just how do we how do we grapple with all of that i think at least to feel the severity of that i think is really important yeah yeah and and Mm. drew i think i agree with you i think there is something really risky about any kind of comparison and i don't think i would have ever I don't know how I would have ever even come to that idea if someone like Baldwin hadn't said it. Yeah. I don't think I would have <laughs> it's ever. It's the fact it's Baldwin, right? You're like, right. no, nah, that's wrong. It's James Moore. Oh, okay. Maybe I need to pause. And I think it's the pause there with that stuff. That's part of the power. The fact that it, it's coming from um, uh, this incredible prophet who um, uh, was formed by the church um, and rejected by the church and then was a, a prophet to a stage much larger than the church, um, that it it causes us to pause and go, wow. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think, Drew, you put your finger on it when you talked about your kids. I mean, I think if we think of it that way, hmm. like if, if I have two futures for my kids, both horrible, but one is one in which they are oppressed for doing right, 
and the other is which they are, they are the oppressor. I, I don't hesitate, right? I mean, I don't want oppression for my kids, but dear God, I, I would, in, in a thousand worlds, give me my kids being oppressed, not my kids as oppressor, right? And that's what Baldwin is naming, that he's saying back to white Americans, like, yes, you've decimated my people. Yes, you've, you've stripped us of basic rights. But what you've done to yourselves is far worse because you've taken your own humanity away. Mm. Right. And I think and that's when, that's like, in terms of the book of Hebrews um, and the Baldwin who wrote this book, that um, poetically this is written to a people who are facing persecution as well. So there is a social, lo- like, context and um, speaking how to not be caught up in these cycles um, while living with the reality of, of violent persecution, um, which which brings us, if I can segue like, like that, as interesting as, as that sidestep was, um, would you lead us uh, through um, the book of Hebrews not identifying the suffering of Jesus with um, the lamb that is offered, but instead with the priest acting yeah. on behalf of God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me look up the passage that I want to start with. We're going to come to Hebrews 9 in just a moment, but let me... Mm. The, the priestly theology, of course, is everywhere. We, we just... We, if you keep reading in in this passage, the Hebrews ten, that, I mean Hebrews two that we were just in. Um, so I think we stopped in verse fifteen, somewhere around verse fifteen. Yeah, and he's going to free us who've been held in slavery by the fear of death. And then we get that verse sixteen is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Right. So he's going to share the sufferings of this sacrifices, but he's going to be a high priest. And in that way, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself, verse 18, he himself was was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. Right. So he's, in himself, he's identifying with the victims, but it, that is the way in which he carries out the, the ministry of the priesthood, and that is the sacrifice of atonement, right? So that's how Hebrews starts us with this account of, like, priestly ministry. And again and again, chapters 3 and 4, the 5, they all kind of spell out the ways in which Jesus is priest. And two things are going on. One, to your point, Jared, he's priest, not sacrifice, meaning he's not the one upon whom God is acting. He is God acting. That's right. Right. And this, this, you know, it's a famous line from the Billy Graham sermon about how on the cross, the lightning of God's wrath strikes Jesus instead of us. No, <laughs> right. Like that's, that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel right. is not that Jesus is the victim of God's wrath. The gospel is that Jesus is God carrying out the wrath of God against the things that destroy us. Yeah. At at that point, uh, our dear brother, Billy, his God needs to accept Jesus into his heart. heart. That's right. right. We need an altar call for Billy Graham's God. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this, that's somebody plays softly and tenderly on the keys. (laughs) 
I see that hand, God. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this this is a really important point that Jesus is not the object on which God plays out his revenge or his vengeance or his quote unquote retribution. Jesus is God back to Hebrews one, three, right? Jesus is God enacting justice against the devil and against death and against sin and redeeming us from the violence of Cain and Abel. And Again, I, I think Hebrews, if you just read what's in the text, it's it's very clear. It's just hard to read what's in the text because of the violence that's obscured our vision. Right? Mm. And so that's the first level. And Jared, I'd love for you to say more, you, Andrew, more about that. But the second level is that not only is Jesus a priest and not a sacrifice, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not mm-hmm. a priest in the order of Aaron. Come on. Right? So he's a priest from outside. So he's he is identified with God, but he's a, a, a God acting from outside the system that God institutes. Right. And and of course that's straight out of the text, right? That God calls Abraham, you know, leave your father's house, I'll make you a blessing to all the nations. But the blesser has to be blessed too, and is blessed from someone who's not a part of his own systems, right? And Israel's constantly israel stories are constantly telling us this the most righteous person in the earth is job who's not an israelite right the melchizedek is the priest of the most high god and he's not a kin of abraham and so on and so on and Mm -hmm. so on and so on right the jesus saying you know of the centurion i've never seen faith like this in all of israel right there's nothing more jewish than a celebration of the gentile faith and that has mm. always been true. Like yeah. That's that, everywhere in the text and everywhere in Israel's history. And so, and, and to this day. So the, this is, I think, the, at least those two levels to what priesthood means for Jesus. In, and, we'll, and I'll add a third when we come back to the text in a moment, where he does his sacrifice. So he's a priest and not a victim. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek and not a priest in the order of Aaron. So he comes from outside the system. And then he offers a sacrifice, not in the holy place or in the holy of holies, but outside the city in the place of the dead. And and that's where the book ends, which we'll come to in a moment. Did you want to say more, Drew or Jared, about, about that? I mean, I love this text so much that um, but I, I don't want to get in the way of... I know you're not just a, a anointed as a professor, but as a preacher, um, not right. just with a pen, but in the pulpit. I, I don't want to get in the way any, um, but I mean, I, I'm i loving this so much. And I, I think it's missed by so many that um, the priest and the mediator role are interchangeable in this, um, at, like the, the priest's role was, was not to bring something um, uh, to appease a wrathful God on behalf of the people. The, the priest w- was like, um, the arrows don't work in that direction to, oh, what are we going to give God? Like throw somebody in the volcano before like the wrath gets us. Um, the, the, before the lightning hits us. But instead the, the priest's role is on behalf of God to offer to God um, uh, an offering for the people. And so the arrow works the other way. So the, the, Priest mm-hmm. is God um, embodied, um, uh, it, like right throughout the Hebrew Bible before we get to literally God embodied in, in the person of, of Jesus. 
And so to put Jesus in that role, um, it's uh, God's offering of God's self. So like we could read John 3.16, God so loved the world that God gave of God's self. Yep. That's that's the... um, And the the um god so loved the world like so how how's the so it's like hebrews is actually spelling out the so um it's it's the how it's it's this is how it's happening identification like even the name abel um habal um in the hebrew means worthless and god hears the cries of those who are named worthless from the ground and they're not at Calvary cries those cries as God's response to our cries. I mean, there's so much in here, Chris, that's worth yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's Romans eight. I mean, that's the groan that the creation groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And that that's Hebrews seven. If we jump to that text for just a moment, yeah. look, look at what Hebrews seven says about what it means for Christ to be a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, make sure I don't miss a Yeah. Start in verse 11. So 7, 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek rather than one according to the order of Aaron, right? So two priesthood, priesthoods here. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well, right? So he's saying you're, the way you practice the law is tied to the way you practice priesthood, right? The law is the priesthood and you because you enacted it in a particular way. And there's a kind of Aaronic practice and then there's a Melchizedekian practice and Jesus is the latter. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one who, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. This is going to be really important at the end of the book mm-hmm. that Jesus is a priest who establishes his own altar. Right, that he, which of course calls back not only the Levitical tradition, but the Abrahamic story, right? The man who builds altars. Jesus mm-hmm. is establishing his own altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It is even more obvious when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest, not through a legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life. So what he's saying to you is that Jesus' legitimacy as a priest does not come through bloodlines, mm-hmm. but through the ways in which he, the way he lives, the pattern of his life is what is celebrated by God as priestly. He, his life becomes this new altar that he builds. And so he's, he's priest and not sacrifice. He's the enactor of God's will, not the victim of God's will. Yeah. But he does that through the way he lives his life. And given everything Hebrews is concerned with about death, right, that Jesus takes flesh and blood so he can die and through death, destroy death, all of that. But it's Jesus' life that Hebrews wants us to see as the legitimation of Jesus' priesthood. It's the way mm. Jesus lives that tells us that his life is the truth about God, right? It's look at, look at how, look at how he handles himself, right? Look at the way he treats his enemies. Look at the way 
his bearing. Look at this, his spirit. That that is the indestructible life mm. that legitimizes his priesthood as as blessing. Right. So when Melchizedek comes, and this is so important too, when Melchizedek comes, what he brings to bear on Abraham is blessing. Yeah. Right. He does, and what he gets from Abraham is bread and wine. Not not broken body and shed blood, but bread and wine. And that's why the Eucharist is at the heart of this, right? That that Jesus is the one who turns our violence into meal, into feast. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's that's where this is this is where I think Hebrews is going. So good. That's so good. Yeah, this uh, the power of his life that cannot be destroyed. I mean, that's really powerful. Um, and it does invite, again, for uh, so-called Christian culture that is so consumed and has, I mean, has sanctioned death, right? And death dealing um, to imagine a life, to see a life, right? In the person of Jesus, his birth, life, teachings, death and resurrection, um, this life that is so life-giving um, and that invites us to enter in and participate in that life um, is a really different um, invitation, I think, than mm. the kind of um, just, yeah, I don't even want to call it discipleship, but I guess a different kind a, a discipleship in a different direction that has been so common in our society today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not, there's just nothing in it about appeasing God. That's There's right. nothing in it about pacifying God's need to settle the score, right? There's, mm. there's, because there's nothing like that in God. Right. Yeah. Right. There's no, there's nothing in God that needs balance. God doesn't mm-hmm. need, have any books to reconcile. To right? reconcile, like, right. Th- right. Th- that's just not who, who God is. And Jesus' life tells us that, right? Like Jesus' life discloses God fully. And this is this is one of the reasons I think it's really important to to insist that the incarnation is not a humiliation for God. That mm. God becoming human is not God becoming less than himself. Yeah. Like the incarnation is fitting. Nothing is more appropriate for this God than for him to be human. Humans mm. are the image of God because the God in whose image they're made is human. So, like, nothing could be further from the truth than the idea that the incarnation is a lessening of God or a kind of, and this is one of the ways in which we terribly misread Philippians 2. Like, the humiliation is not that he becomes human. The humiliation is that he dies and that he dies as a sinner. That's a humiliation. And he accepts that humiliation willingly. What's that? Yeah. And the talk of cross. Like, again, this is the identification with the one named worthless whose blood cries out. at like for, for cross crux, like just the association. And I, I mean, you know, it's, it's those verses that I did learn in my youth from Hebrews uh, for the joy set before him. And somehow we um, uh, equate the joy with the cross instead of the joy set before him is why he endured the cross. He endured <laughs> the cross, yeah. Or the, the other passage, like um, from my childhood, I don't know if this is true for everybody else, um, but um, Hebrews 10, 25, um, which was basically the get your ass to church 
verse. Let us not give up on meeting and gathering together. Um, But like even in the ethical hints of um, what it is to be incorporated um, in this life and this joy um, uh, is the verse before, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Or in um, uh, for those of us who have been around the Catholic worker scene for, for more than five seconds, it, you're going to he- hear talk of um, entertaining angels really quickly, mm-hmm. um, which is like such a beautiful way of ending our, um, uh, this text, which has said that like Jesus is above the angels. And then it's like, oh, but by the way, um, when you invite in the stranger, um, like Melchizedek, um, uh, like the foreigner in the land, but there is something that God comes to us as the outsider who identifies as the one named worthless and um, a, as inviting them in, we actually enter into our vocation and we might be entertaining angels. Like this is the yep. Matthew 25 passage of the book of Hebrews. It is. And it's also, so it, it can be read in a way, at least in the circles I grew up in, it, it was read in, in a way that it, it kind of mystified the world, but it didn't really have any purpose beyond that. Right. So we, we read that text a lot. I mean, it was referenced a lot in the circles I grew up in, but it was only a, as a, and this is no small thing, but it was mostly as a reminder that we, the, the world is a mysterious place, right? And God's hmm. at work in it, which is wonderful. But if you think about when do angels appear in the text, right? So when, if you, if you look at Israel scriptures, when did human beings entertain angels unaware? And every single time, it's angels anticipate an act of God. Mm. So when angels show up in your life, it's because God is doing something, right? So when it says, do this and you will entertain angels unaware, what it's, the, the meaning is, if you live in this way, you make room for the action of God to break into the world. Like when you treat a stranger in yeah. that way, you are op- every single time you show Jesus-like kindness to anyone, you open up space in the world for the work for the angels of God to appear, right? The work of God begins right there. It begins yeah. the moment you start to treat someone with the dignity that is theirs and in spite of social systems. And that, I, I think that's such a powerful way of reading. That's what Israel's history is, right? I mean, it's Abraham is in a tent. He sees yeah. three strangers run, walk by and he leaps up and runs out to catch them, to serve them, right? And then that becomes the encounter with God. <laughs> Despite a, a painful episode the week earlier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes, he, exactly. He's, he might have been hobbled a bit. But he was, <laughs> might have been limping a bit. While, <laughs> That's exactly while, right. So let me, let, me, let me come back to Hebrews 9, 10, and 13 really quickly. I, I, mm. we, um, I mean, as quickly as you guys want to move, I'm in no hurry, but I don't want to prolong anything unnecessarily but well, i'm not sure if you're watching the chat chris but uh, people are like we're gonna need a part three. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh no which I is to say we're, we're loving this you take your time this is wonderful okay okay great so to your point jared i mean we get if you see the big picture of hebrews we start with jesus is god he, he is everything god is then we move into this account of how he's better than we come to two and we're told outright He's come to be a priest in identification with those who've suffered violence to redeem us from death and the one who has the power of death and from our sins. And then we move into what his priesthood is and how it is unlike 
other priesthoods. It's like Melchizedek and not Aaron. And then in seven, we get that line that the law is always a reflection of the priest, that the law is the law. What the law is, is, is bound up with who the priest is. And so we get to chapter nine and now we're rethinking not just law, but we're also thinking holy places, right? What the, the precincts of holiness are. And notice we can pick it up in verse six, such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. And he's, it's a wordplay almost certainly in that he's talking about the holy place as something distinct from the holy of holies, but also both the holy and the holy of holies of Israel as first in anticipation of Christ as the final, as the last. So he says they, they, they go in to carry out their ritual duties, but only the high priest goes into the second holy of holies and he, but once a year and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. So the high priest goes into the holy of holies with blood by this, the Holy spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. So this, this is a, a subtle notion. But what he's telling you is, it seems to me, the argument is that the reason the Holy of Holies is kind of enclosed by the holy place, so this, the second tent is inside the first one, is because we're not ready yet for that to pass through that second veil. Like we're not prepared to enter the Holy of Holies. And this symbolizes the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, right? So these gifts and sacrifices are not going to perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. So what, what we're getting here is there's a, a sacrificial system that is preparatory for the setting right of all things. The setting right of all things. That's what Jesus is going to do. In the meantime, we have to be prepared for that. But the things we're doing can never set things right. And their, their whole purpose, If you when, when Ben Myers was on with you guys a few months ago, he said this, and I think this is exactly right, that the sacrificial system is intended not to work. It works only by making us aware of the ineffectiveness of this kind of sacrifice. And it's designed to do that. It brings you up against the reality that there's nothing we can do to set all things right. That Abel's sacrifice does not set Cain right. And Cain's sacrifice does not accomplish what he wants. Right. So Abel offers the sacrifice but the world remains broken. All he's doing is telling the truth about the brokenness. When Cain kills him, he just deepens the brokenness. But you can't come along behind Cain and offer another sacrifice. And notice that's not what God calls for. If you go back to Genesis 4, he doesn't institute sacrifice as a way of dealing with Cain's violence. Right? If you try to offer Abel's sacrifice as a way of dealing with Cain's, you Maybe that's telling the truth, but that's all it is. And it's telling mm -hmm. the truth, not about God, but about what we've done to the world. 
Wow. Every sacrifice is a witness not to the character of God. It's a witness to the character of the world under our oppression. The life of yeah, every wow. animal I take, you know, the, the, that sheep bleeding out for my family to be fed, it doesn't honor God. It tells the truth about what my sin has done to this world, that this, this lamb has to die because of me, because of us, because of what we've done, right? So sacrifice is truth-telling, there can be, but it doesn't rectify anything. It can't set mm-hmm. anything right. And it's, its purpose is simply to tell that truth. And it, again, it seems to me that scriptures, Hebrew scripture is consistently making this point over and over and over and over again, right? That Cain's violence will not accomplish what he wants, but Abel's violence will not save us from Cain. It can't, there's no sacrifice that's going to set the world right, right? God has to act. And so the sacrificial system brings us up against that. And that's, I think, the argument here that we're, we're waiting until the time comes for things to be set right. And then we get to, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves. And, and Aquinas points out here how there is no Levitical law that called for the blood of goats in the holy mm. place. So this is, again, Christ is enacting a priesthood that is his own. It's not just yeah. taken from the text. Like Christ's life is creative in that way. But he doesn't come with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been de- defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more with the blood of Christ will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. Now, this such a dense argument here, right? And we might need to slow down and unpack it. But I, I think the heart of the argument is not that God demands blood and what's better than the blood of a virgin and what's better than the blood of God. That's, that's not the point. The point is this blood does not accomplish anything except making us aware of what we've done to the world. It, it, uh, it, it uh, accentuates our fallenness and our futility, the frustration in which we live. But Jesus enters into that tent. Right? He actually passes into the tent we could not enter. Mm-hmm. And he does this with his own blood. Right? He, he dies offering himself without blemish to God. And this this is, again, so hard to hear rightly because of the way we've heard what Jesus is doing in his death as appeasing God, right? So if you think of this in terms of you know, there's been sin and the penalty according to God's rules for sin is death, and so someone has to die. And instead of us dying, Jesus willingly dies for us as an intercessor. Like, that's just not the logic at all here. But it's hard not to hear it given that that's what's been imposed on us, right? But God, first of all, God does not demand death, right? Sin ends in death, not because God requires it in some, you know, arbitrary way, but that's just what sin brings about. And Jesus is ending that, not 
fulfilling it. He's not continuing that. He's come to destroy death. Go back to chapter 2. His entire purpose as high priest is to save us from death and the one who has the power of death and the fear of death. So what he's offering here, when he offers himself without blemish to God, is not a an enactment of sacrifice as we understand it, but as something that is better than sacrifice. And this goes back to that That's point, right. Jared, that you made. This everything depends on which which way you read this line. If you read this as Jesus making a sacrifice of himself, because God demands a sacrifice in order to bring things right, then you're going to be stuck in that that loop of violence. Yeah. What Hebrews is saying is Jesus offers himself to God. And that's an alternative to all of this. This is the way out of the loop of violence. Yeah. And this is why he, he's a priesthood who comes from outside the loop, right? He's a, he's a priest from outside the order of things because he's not doing either what Cain did or what Abel did. He's doing something new, Mm. something new that we always knew needed to be done, but we couldn't do ourselves. And he's, he's presenting himself as a gift without it in any way being appeasement for God. Right? There, yeah. There's no satisfying God here in the sense of yeah. God needing to be satisfied. And, but he's and living yet, Chris, a life there, that is pleasing to God. There is an appeasement. It's appeasement our need for blood, but not God's need for blood. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, absolutely. Like um, so, like it, it does satisfy, uh, but not that God needs to be satisfied. Um, in fact, Hebrews will make the point that Jesus is the same. <laughs> you know, taking Old Testament like um, God does not change, and then goes Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, so apparently, this hasn't altered um, who God is, uh, but it dynamically alters who we are, what reality Absolutely. is. And, yeah. and what we can build in, in light of this. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I think if you want to see in the text, like where the stress falls, look at, the, well, there's a Trinitarian pattern here. And it's yeah. Jesus offers himself to the Father through the eternal spirit. And eternal there is the is the word that stands against death. Right? So the, the spirit yeah. of life, the eternal spirit as over against yeah. death. Yeah. And so that we might worship the living God, yeah, the God for whom death is not a reality. Like death does not fit into the pattern of the life of God. That's right. That there's, there's, so God not only does not require death, God is eternal and God is eternally lively. God is the God of life, right? God is the living, not of the dead. God is God of the living, not God of the dead. And, and so the, the stress here is that Jesus lives his life in ways that are in keeping with that God, the yeah. living God, who is the eternal spirit, right? Not the God who demands death. There is no, there is no such God. No, tr- the true God is not the God who demands death, right? Yeah. He dies for us to set us free from death and the one who has the power of death into the life of the eternal one who is a living God, a God of li- who moves from life to life, not from life to death. And, this, this is why Jesus' life, to go back to Hebrews 7, this is why Jesus' life is indestructible. Right. Amen. right. That even death can't undo what this life is. And it can't undo what this life is because of the way Jesus lives it toward God. Like the boldness Jesus has with his Father 
is too much for death. And this is where, like, the church fathers, the, the whole fish hook theory, you yeah. probably, you guys have probably gotten into yeah. that um, yeah. at, at various points in the conversation. This is the genius of it, and this is what Nyssa picks up on, in that the death swallows Jesus, not realizing that the life that is in Jesus will swallow death. Right. right? That Jesus' life is just too much for death. Right. Like, there's too much of God's life going on for death to, to mm-hmm. last. And so God, the infinity of God's life just exhausts the finitude of death. Right. And this, I, I think, is the argument that Hebrews is making. That, that's what's going on with he offers himself through the eternal spirit. This, in other words, what Jesus is doing is an eternal motion. Right? He offers himself eternally to God. It's a, it's a way he's living toward God in, and lives in God. And it just masters, it unmasters death. Like it, it strips death of its mastery. That's good. That's good, Chris. Now, you, you know, you bring up a good point, which is probably helpful for our community, especially so in the backdrop, we've got folks who've been reading um, J. Denny Weaver's The Nonviolent Atonement, um, second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that I think doesn't come up in that text at all is or i shouldn't say it doesn't come up but there's a complete um because of the concerns around you know the abuse around thinking about jesus's death there's no necessarily resolve around um the end and eradication of death itself right the defeat of death um in that text per se so you mean in Weaver's text? In Weaver's text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not really where he's going, right? Um, and, and so I guess may I'll put it in a question form and let you answer. Um, and maybe with as much nuance as you need, like, would you say, was Jesus's death necessary? I'm going to put it vaguely like that and then let you answer that question. Mm, not from God's side. Right. Um, I, I think Anselm is actually really helpful here. Uh, Anselm, He's a whipping boy often for a lot of reasons, some, some earned, but I think he's right about this, um, that Jesus' death is not required by God. Jesus' death is a free act on Jesus' part to identify with us. And, you know, God, God it was, Jesus' death was unjust fundamentally unjust right but was he was not going to allow our suffering in injustice to stand between him and us right so he he dies in identification with us but it's deeply unjust now the reason i'm struggling over answering the question is i think the short and easy answer is of course it's not necessary right god does not require it and it's unjust but I do think that what happens with Jesus constitutes what reality is, right? That Jesus is not answering to reality. He's making it. This is the whole point, I think, of the logic of the argument in Hebrews that, you know, death is, seems to be reality. But Jesus, nothing happens to Jesus That's right. that isn't changed by him. Right? So the church fathers make this point about why is Jesus baptized? He doesn't need to be baptized. But what does he say to John? No, 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 no. 
you have to baptize me in order for all righteousness to be fulfilled. So there's no need. It's not necessary for Jesus to be baptized because he's a sinner. It's not necessary for Jesus to die because God has some kind of light, some kind of um, system that he has to uphold. But in order for the righteousness that Jesus is to take effect, it has to happen. And so he says, you know, baptize me. And what the fathers say is when he's baptized, he is not cleansed by the waters, but the waters are cleansed by him. him. Amen. So this is the way I think we have to understand the whole of the incarnation. Everything that happens to Jesus is something that creates the reality for the things that are happening to Jesus. So Maximus Confessor says, why is Mary a virgin? Because she gave birth to Jesus. <laughs> like Mary is a virgin because she gave birth to Jesus. Why are the waters oh, sanctifying? Yeah. Because Jesus was washed in them. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Drew, I think he's the one who tells us what's necessary. So in terms of like rules of justice, of course not. In terms of what God desires and what should be done, of course not. But he's, he's the creator, and he's creating reality as he lives. Like, you know that. So does that – are you hearing my response here? Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. absolutely. And I guess the only other thing that I guess I also wanted to get to was um, – so – not in appeasing God, but in the fact that Jesus also um, in his death swallows up death. Right. Um, And, and how to, how do we talk about that while separating that from the violent crucifixion that he underwent, right. That in his death, Jesus also defeats death, but, but differentiating that from he didn't need to be crucified by humanity to appease God. Like, like, I, I think like those are yeah, I think, hard yeah, I th- things I think, for, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, I, I think we have got to just get out of our heads, this idea that there's a system in place to deal with sin and that God <laughs> is trying to make sure that system is followed. Right. Right. There, there's no, when we say plan of salvation, like Jesus is the plan. Like there's no, there's no plan, you know, that God is consulting to say, all right, what's our next move, right? There, there's no system of justice that God answers to. Jesus is the plan. Right. Yeah. Right. And so what's, what we have to just get completely out of our heads is the idea that God arbitrarily decides on a way of dealing with sin, you know, that God says, all right, so we're going to almost, and I do think we imagine this life as a kind of game that God beforehand in quote unquote eternity past, there is no such thing, but that's the way we talk about it. Like in eternity past that where God, you know, sketches the rules. So, you know, if this happens, then this is going to happen. And this is the penalty for doing this foul and so on. Like we imagine that God has kind of schemed the way things have to go. And so then when Adam and Eve do what they do, then God is like, okay, well, the rule book says we have to do this. Like that's in no way what's happening with salvation, right? There, there is no kind of rule book to which God is answering. Justice is not something that God has to submit to. And so much of our preaching suggests not only that the father is just and Jesus is merciful, but that the father, his hands are kind of tied right. by this abstraction called justice that this, demands this angel justice. Sin. Absolutely. This angel and, and, that God has to answer to. 
And all of that is just, it's just BS, right? I mean, it, it just couldn't be further from the wisdom of the tradition or the wisdom of scripture, what Jesus embodies, right? So yeah, Drew, I think we, we, we've got to get that out of our hearts and minds, right? That there, that's just not at all what's taking place. And mm. until we get that out of, that's the obscurity that keeps us from seeing what the text is saying and makes it so that we read onto the text that pattern when in fact there's nothing like that, right? Um, in terms of Jesus defeating death, Lou Williams, you guys know um, the basketball player? I was going to say, what do you, what do you say? I was going to say, I know the basketball player. So this is, there's a story about him. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there's a story about him in Atlanta one night getting carjacked at gunpoint. You guys know this story? No. So he gets carjacked guy at gunpoint. And then the guy recognizes him. It's like, Oh, Lou Williams, you're like one of my favorites. And talked about, you know, how much you love watching him play. And it ends with Lou Williams taking him to dinner. Mm. That's the gospel, right? That we bring death against God. And then we recognize who this is. And once we see his face, he befriends us. Mm. Right? That's what I mean when I say Jesus kind of swallows. There's like, he's too much for death, right? Like this carjacker is like over, he's in awe of this man he loves to watch play, right? This indestructible life that is Lou Williams on the basketball court. And mm. that shakes him out of the violence. It shakes him out of the pattern of violence that is his life and ends in friendship. That's the kind of thing that I think Jesus does, right? That like he, once we see his face, once we recognize who he is, it summons out of us our own humanity. And suddenly it's, you know, we're, yeah. I mean, I, I think you can get a feel. It's so I, that's good. A, <laughs> it's, it's so good. And like to, to approach that question then, like, is it necessary for Lou to take this fella to dinner? Um, well, it's, it's certainly necessary for the transformation of this fella. Um, but it, maybe like to like stretch the story, be it apocryphal or not, it's necessary because it's who Lou is, right? Absolutely. That's, that's like, the point I think we have to make, yes. Right. And, and then in chapter nine, with all the talk of Jesus's blood, if we can understand that through a Hebraic imagination, that it is a discussion of Jesus's life, <laughs> that every time the blood is mentioned, we're talking about the ministry, the exorcisms, the teaching, the healing, um, who Jesus is hanging out with, where he's found, who he's breaking bread with. It is that blood, that life that saves and Absolutely. suddenly we can, um, so that's a Hebraic imagination, uh, but to go to a Hellenistic imagination, when we see the early church fathers and, um, you know, in um, the great liturgy of Chrysostom talking about the bloodless sacrifice, um, and we're like, hang on, what's this talk of bloodless? It's a Greek way of approaching what's being talked about in terms of blood um, in a Hebrew imagination, it's the life of Jesus. And the great liturgy is saying the same thing. It is the life of Jesus, this bloodless sacrifice, his life that saves. And suddenly we have two different cultures articulating the same truth that God gives of God's self 
and that is what saves. Absolutely. And, and that seeing the face of God summons your humanity from you. That the moment you recognize God, you recognize yourself. That's yes. who I am, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's what and, blessing and, is. That the face yeah, of God blessing. and yeah. blessing in Hebrew, like that connection. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it is a, it, it makes you drop the gun, right? And go to dinner. Not out of a sense of guilt or this is, you know, it was passing around last week, but that line Carl Bart has about Billy Graham's preaching. I mean, not to single out Billy Graham, but he's got a lot to answer for. I mean, mm-hmm. that Billy Graham's gospel is a is not only a God who demands death to pay for sin, but also a God is also a God who moves us by fear. Yes. Right. That fear of of us receiving what is coming to us because of our sin, but that'll never set you free. Right. Like the, to go, not to overplay this metaphor, but back to the Lou Williams story, like threat of being killed by a good guy with a gun will never deliver that man from the pattern of violence. Yeah. Like the carjacker, whatever his name was like, that's just continuing the pattern of violence itself. Right. And, but and once he gets, recognized, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, Chris. Like, no, uh, no. Um, I've been misbehaving this whole episode because I find I it love so it. exciting. But um, we never get to Jesus as pioneer. If it's um, uh, if if it's satisfaction, um, yes. If it's satisfactory, it's not exemplary. So That's instead right. of it being a reality for us to participate in, it's permission to let us off the hook for not actually engaging in the life we see in Jesus. And so right. the pioneers go before us to show us where we're all going. And as the author and pioneer, like we don't need author and pioneer if it's just blood for this angel that is somehow above the one that Jesus reveals. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why, yeah, I mean, completely agree. And He's so he's the author in that he creates us, then he lives the kind of life we are meant to live, right, right. for us. And that's that's the point in Hebrews 9 here about nobody had entered into the holy place until mm. he did, right? There was one, but it was only there to tell us that we weren't there yet, right? So that all of the Israel was enacting was a kind of liturgical enactment of what we cannot do in anticipation of what God alone can do so that we then can do it with God, right. And do it in God. And that, that, that was the design. It was designed to be an enactment of what we cannot accomplish. Like the whole reason there was an ironic priesthood is to tell us we need Melchizedek. The mm. whole reason there is this pattern of offering sacrifices like Abel's is to tell us we need a sacrifice that's better than Abel's, not just mm. better than Cain's. And that is, is what, again, I think the whole witness of Scripture is about. One example of that is in the Psalms, like Psalm 72 talks about God redeeming the oppressed, that God mm. will redeem the oppressed because their blood is precious in his sight. Mm. What that means, blood, and this goes to your point, Jared, about blood is shorthand for their life. That's right. That's right. Their life is precious to God. And every drop of blood matters to God, right? That's why the ground speaks when Abel's yes. blood is shed on it, right? Because 
God, there's not a drop of blood, just like there's not a hair that's not numbered. There's not a drop of blood that's not precious in God's sight because it's your blood, because God cares about you. So God is not only not bloodthirsty, God is not only not requiring death for sin. God hates every drop of blood that's shed because of what it takes from the life that you are. Mm. Right? And, and, th- and it's that life that God delights in, right? So it's, and if you can see that face, George MacDonald says, you know, there's, it's not possible to see God as he is and not love him. That's right. Not possible to see God That's as right. he is and not love him. And I, and I, I believe that like, mm. if I can see God, if, if I'm not in love with God, it's because I can't see him yet. Right. I haven't had the moment of recognition. I, I don't realize that I'm carjacking Lou Williams right? Yeah. and sweet Lou. Uh, I haven't recognized him yet, but once you recognize sweet Lou, you drop the gun and you go to dinner. Mm. Like that's what you do. And nothing else will deliver me from violence, but that recognition right? that, that this is my friend. And this is what I think. Again, the whole of scripture is, is testifying to over and over and over again. Mm the yeah that's good do, do you want to say more there or do you want to come back to hebrews 9 uh, i actually um uh, this is the first time i'm doing interviews where i've been brought to tears chris um and, and i wonder if if there's a you know we'll, we'll get lots of opportunities to hang out this has been so rich this has been so incredible and um, if if Jesus taught me anything, it's that God is at least as good as Lou Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I just thank you for your work and, and witness to that reality. This has been really, really powerful. But, Drew, I don't want to cut you off if, if, if you do have um, stuff you want to pursue. No, I was, you know, I was just thinking about um, just taking it then to on the on the discipleship side, right? Just mm. thinking about um, this invitation that you know that people need to see the face of God, and this invitation to you know participate in this life that defeats death. Um, and the way that both Jesus and even Paul invites us to overcome evil with good, right? Mm. I mean, and just thinking about, um, yeah, the invitation to see that not just as a work of, you know, the struggle in and of itself, but also uh, un- uh, giving people an opportunity to make visible the face of God in our own lives, make visible the story of Jesus in our own lives. And I think that that is... Um, also just really powerful and important when we think about what God has done in Jesus Christ and that has invited us, right, to live into and to embody this story on the ground in the midst of a world that we often don't see the face of God um, enough in our neighbors. Yeah. That's that's right, Drew. And I think that's why Hebrews is so concerned with conscience. Mm. So God purifies our conscience. I mean, the way I understand that is God gives us our hearts back, right? Like God restores not innocence in the sense of childishness, but 
the kind of boldness that comes with knowing that there's nothing between us, right? So we all know like what it's like when you're interacting with a friend or a spouse or a child where things are not quite right between you, right? Like where you love each other and you're committed to each other, but things are just not quite right. Like something is off, right? And we also all, I think, have those moments where we feel, okay, it came aligned. We are good. Like we're okay. And what we mean by that is, is something like what Hebrews means by the purity of conscience. Like there's nothing between us now. Like it, it really is okay. I'm okay. And you're okay. We're okay. Right. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us to live toward God with. And that means to live toward our neighbor with that. And that comes not through fear, but through that recognition of the goodness of God and the absolute devotion God has to you. And it's so hard for us to come to accept that. But once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Once, once you've had that, that sense of the face of God, that, that's, that's what animates you, enables you to live this kind of, this is why Hebrew says, like, we're able to come boldly into God, like with, with, without reserve, right? Without, without that kind of nagging sense in the back of our heads that maybe we don't really know what's going on. And Jesus accomplishes that because that's, that's the way he lives with God and has opened that way, right? He's, he's, gone, he's a pioneer precisely in the sense that he, he shows us that way of living and enables, enables us to live that way. And yeah, I mean, I could go on forever about that, but I, I think that's, that's the Christian life, right? The Christian life is, is a life of, of kind of open heartedness mm. like, uh, of without defensiveness or reserve. You can live with kind of unstinting compassion and mercy because you know who you are. Right. And you know, You've you've seen the face of Lou Williams, right? And mm. and and you're never gonna re, you're never gonna recover from that, right? Like and there's there, there's a there's a way in which you know once you no longer fear death, right? You know, by the way, that's a trope in American storytelling. Um, Denzel Washington has played this character more than once. Um, of the man who's lost everything and therefore no longer fears death and how dangerous that man is. Right. Like once you have nothing to lose, you're capable of doing anything. Well, that's the perverse reversal of what's true in Jesus. Once you no longer fear death, no mercy is unthinkable for you. Like once you realize that there's nothing to fear in death, then there's nothing too good to think or attempt. There's no, there's no mercy. There's no justice that becomes unimaginable. And, and that is the life that Jesus embodies. That's well said. And That's good. I don't, I, I don't know how you, I don't think it's possible to see that and not just fall head over heels in love. Like, oh, man. like I love Jesus to death, like for just this reason, right? Like, mm. because it's, it's, it's glorious. It's what I want for myself. It's what I want for everyone I love. It's what I, how I want people to be seen and to see me. It's, it's humanity, like fully alive. 
and that that's what we're called to. Let, I'll say a couple more things. We probably should wrap up. I don't know. You guys tell me when we're done, but I, I want to draw attention to a couple more texts really quickly and then whatever. Chris, let's, let's run. Uh, we will warn you that once you're done here, we'll, we'll press pause for the podcast and everybody who's with us have questions. So you, okay. <laughs> you, you pace yourself. You got okay, everybody warmed up. <laughs> All right, just good. I, right, I, so I will say on that last point that you, um, this is where the, the concluding exhortations make so much sense. Like if you yes. capture, if you get a glimpse of God is that good. Um, keep loving each other as Philadelphia, right? That, that's it, like um, w w with that sibling love. Uh, do not forget to entertain philozenia. Like um, we use in English the word xenophobia, uh, meaning yeah. fearing the stranger. Like um, the word for like welcoming refugees is, is literally love of the foreigner there. Um, by doing so, you'll have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and that those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. That, that sums up, uh, that's everything Drew was saying about discipleship, about Christian ethics, about the shape of a life um, that is lived from this relational reality of God giving of God's self so we become an offering um, uh, back to the God who has offered everything to us on behalf of everyone else. Absolutely. So to try to try, tie some strings together here, when you fear death, you can never tell the full truth about your past because of what you're afraid the full truth about your past will mean for your future, right? So fear of death is always fear of the stranger and it's always fear of the strange, the unknown, because your, the threat against your life, supposedly, comes from what you do not know. Now, we should know better than that, right? But that's, that's the way fear works, right? So fear of death is fear of the future. It's fear of the unknown. And it's that fear that keeps us from telling the truth about our past. But once you no longer fear death, you can tell the truth without reserve. But it also means that everything you do not know is a happy surprise. Mm. Everything you do not know is nothing but the mystery of God unfolding to you, Come which on. means every stranger is Jesus. Yeah. Like, so as a Pentecostal, like there's nothing that grieves me more than Pentecostals who are xenophobic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're people who speak in tongues and believe that every language of the earth is a language in which the spirit speaks. And then we will go to the grocery store and get angry when we hear someone speaking in Spanish. This is America, speak English. Like, our entire spirituality is this is the God who speaks all languages. And every time I hear a language, and I, I want this for my kids, I try to say this to my kids, whenever you hear a language you do not recognize, assume they're saying something glorious. That mm. if you could just learn the language, you would know. Mm. Beautiful. Like it, whether it's the grocery store or the gas station or church, if you hear a language and you don't know what's being said, it's a secret in God for you. Like that's what it means to live without fear of death. It, everything I do not know is a surprise from God for me. How could I ever not embrace the stranger at that point? Right. I mean, how could I not love the stranger? Because that's mm -hmm. God about to surprise me with something 
far more glorious than I could have known to ask for. That's the life Jesus makes possible. Oof. And uh, yeah. Um, a couple things in Hebrews 9 and we got to get to questions I'm sure but this this book it would take years of our lives to unpack but I, I did, a couple things from Hebrews 9 I'll, I'll do give me like six minutes Chris, and I, I just want to say I've loved every one of the sermons you've given tonight <laughs> yes I've got, right. I've got three right. more at least three more <laughs> uh, that's good notice notice verse um Chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it, oh, oh, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Aquinas, in his commentary on this passage, makes the point that in the original giving of the law to Moses, before the golden calf story, there is no provision for sacrifice. It's only after the golden calf story and Moses breaks the tablets and we get a new law that there's a provision for sacrifice. And he, he ties this to Jeremiah seven 22 that says outright that when I spoke, when I first spoke to the fathers, I did not require sacrifice. I only asked you to do my will. And Aquinas says that the whole purpose of sacrifice is to keep them from idolatry. It's it's essentially to, to keep their hands busy like what, what Aquinas says is if, we, if God didn't give us something to do religiously, we would make idols. So what God does is give us religious practices that force us to confront what we've done to the world. We can't make a golden calf. We're going to have to offer the blood of these animals. But it's only necessary because of our instinct to idolatry, which when you think about what evangelicals have done with the sacrificial system, that is an idol. Like mm. what, what God perhaps did not anticipate is that we can make an idol, even of the very thing he's given us to keep us from making idols. Mm. And the, <laughs> and that's, I think what, what we did. Right. So he says, coming back to 23, nine twenty-three. thus it was necessary for the sketches of heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. So he says, you know, in, in, in the world as you and I experience it, there's a need for this kind of ritual. But that, that won't work for the way things really are. So this is not some kind of platonic dualism. Of, you know, I'm not even sure Plato has platonic dualism in the way we think of it, but Regardless, I don't, this is not some kind of like Gnostic rejection of the world or embodiment. Heavenly things, this is a reference to the way things actually are, right? The, the way in which they are in God. Creation as it is true to itself, not as we misperceive it because of sin and fear. So he says there, something better than this has to be done. And this, this is the important point, right? So back to Hebrews 11 for just a moment. Abel's sacrifice is better than Cain's. Yeah. But we need something better than better Abel's than sacrifice. Right. Not just better than Cain's. And that's what the whole concern of scripture is. How do we get something better than Cain's? I mean, better than Abel's, not just better than Cain's sacrifice. And that's what Christ gives us. And 
he enters in once for all, right? And he, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Right? And that leads us into chapter 10 really quickly. He makes the point that these sacrifices do not make perfect those who offer them, right? So the sacrifices that God institutes after the golden calf, the sacrifices of blood, Abel's sacrifice, they don't make anyone perfect, and they weren't intended to. Right? And he, the writer says, otherwise they would not have, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. In other words, if a sacrifice worked, it would alter your consciousness. But in fact, all it does is make you conscious of sin. And then he tells you outright, verse three, but in these sacrifice sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. In other words, Abel makes a sacrifice to tell the truth of his story. Israel makes sacrifices to tell the truth of their sinfulness, not God's wisdom, not God's character, not God's goodness. They tell, they, they offer sacrifices to tell the truth of their own sinfulness. And so it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats, bulls and goats to take away sins, right? Because all of that blood simply reminds us of what we've done to the world. And that's why he picks up Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now, that's a shocking line because mm. over and over again with Abel and with Noah, we get explicit references to burnt offerings being pleasing to God. And the psalmist says, they were never pleasing to you. Yeah, You were never pleased in us offering these sacrifices. You were pleased in us, but not in our offerings. Then I said, see, God, I have come to do your will, O God, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And so this is Psalm 40, and he's, the writer is unpacking it. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. And notice the rest of verse nine. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. In other words, the sacrificial system has to be done away with in order for God's will to be done. Now, how perverse is it that we've imagined that Jesus being killed is the will of God? Mm. That's It's literally the opposite of what Hebrews is saying, that yeah. Jesus dies to do away with death and to do away with sacrificial death so the will of God can be done. Right. It, again, we've construed this, speaking loosely here, we've construed this as Jesus has to die because that's God's will. No, no, no. Jesus ha has to die because otherwise God's will will never be done. We will keep sacrificing. Jesus has to die so sacrifice becomes impossible. And once sacrifice becomes impossible, then the will of God can be done. He, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah, right? Which he quotes at the end of this chapter, 
I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. The problem was never with the, the law itself, but with us, right? And now we fulfilled Psalm 8, verse 13 and verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's made it possible for us to do the will of God with boldness in, in the face of God. So, verse 19, therefore, my friends, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then that leads to all those directions, right, Jared, that you already called attention to. We can live with that kind of boldness now toward each other, like provoking one another to good deeds and openness to the stranger, because we have this absolute confidence. You know, in John, in the language of John, perfect love casts out fear, casts out all fear. If you go back and read the text, he's not talking about fear in general, although I think that's true. He's specifically talking about the fear of the judgment of God. Mm. Perfect love casts out the idea that the judgment of God is something that you should dread. Come on. Like when you love God as you have been loved, the last thing you would fear is that God would be against you. Mm. Like it's unthinkable. It should be as unthinkable for you to fear God as it would have been for Jesus. There's, there's no anxiety in Jesus about what the father sees in him. Yeah. Jesus did not have a moment of, you know, is the father with me? Is the father for me? And neither should we. I mean, Mm. that's, we do, but only because love is not perfected in us yet. Right. So I come to the end, my last sermon, Hebrews 13, (laughs) Uh, my last sermon for, you know, today, anyway. Well, um, let's let's find out what happens in question time. Okay, okay, fair enough. So Hebrews, <laughs> let's let's pick up Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace. In other words, again, when you hear grace rightly, it frees you to be yourself. Right? This is why self control is a fruit of the spirit. Right, the more of the more of God you see the freer you are to be who you are, right? the less anxious you are about managing yourself to please God. You're emboldened once you see God as he is. We have an altar, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have no right to eat. This is the altar that Jesus made of his own life. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are buried outside the camp. Gosh, This gets me every single time. Sorry. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Mm. Now, notice we've done all of this work about Jesus as priest. Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now we get at the end to where does Jesus do his work as priest? Not in the precincts of the holy, but in the most unholy place imaginable in the place where the carcasses of the sacrificial animals are disposed and burned. Jesus dies not in the holy of holies. He dies as the holy of holies in the unholiest of unholiest. 
in, in literally the least holy, most unholy, most defiled place imaginable, the carcasses of these sacrificial animals that have to be burned, that's where he dies. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So this is a kind of call to outsider status, right? Become a stranger. Through him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Notice that word, sacrifice, is now tied to fruit. Now go back to the Cain and Abel story. <laughs> what was it that Cain tried to offer that was unacceptable? Fruit. Wow, fruit, right. I've never seen that. And what Jesus does is his sacrifice is not only better than Cain's, it is Cain's. And is so better than Abel's because it reconciles the brothers. That is what Jesus does. That only Jesus can offer Cain's sacrifice in a way that raises Abel from the dead. That's what we offer. Every praise we speak is Cain's sacrifice. Huh. This is why Jesus is the new Abel. Abel's blood testifies against Cain. Jesus' blood blesses us. Mm. And so our worship is the worship of Cain, made possible by the way Jesus lives. And that, that I think, is the argument of Hebrews. That's why we need a sacrifice better than the sacrifice of Abel, because Abel's sacrifice leaves Cain in grief. The brothers are separated. They're alienated. Only Jesus' sacrifice can reconcile them. All right, and so I'm, I'm stopping there. All right, time for the altar call to Jesus. Yeah, I'm, 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 already, I'm already down there. Uh, You're right I'm, here. Uh, Jared led the way. You don't need a call. Uh, I'm already down the aisle. <laughs> No, that was really good. Powerful. Chris, yeah. Yeah. That that's incredible. Um look, we're, we're gonna transition. I don't know what we're gonna do with this episode, Drew. Like, <laughs> like this is so much gold. Um uh but we'll, we'll work that out. We'll um we'll transition to, to QA um now. But mate, thank you. That that's just been incredible. Yep. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for letting me. I mean I what a gift we have. I mean, yes, Jesus, but man, these, these texts are so glorious. If we just would read mm. them, mm. you know, I mean, like, I know that a lot of us and people on this call and people who will hear this call, we've been hurt by readings of scripture that are abusive. Yeah. But my God, like if we can just read what the texts say and not what we've been told the texts say, you can taste the goodness of God in them. Like it, it's, it's, I, I want that so badly for, for people right, to, the goodness of God is in the scriptures. If we can just get past what we've been told the scriptures say. 
that's a good uh, motto for what we try to do here on Inverse. <laughs> yeah, it so is. Yeah. Inverse podcast yeah. is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.